This is the Forgecast, your eye into the who's who and what's what in cybersecurity and the cloud. Each episode, we bring you fresh perspectives, personal stories, insights, and advice from leaders, innovators, and change makers forging a stronger future. Welcome to the Forgecast. I am Alberto Yepes, and I'm going to be your host today. And I'm delighted to have Dr. Neil Costigan with us who is going to share his journey as a serial entrepreneur with more than 25 years of experience in this industry, cryptographer by training, entrepreneur and renaissance man that has done a number of great startups that actually have realized great returns to investors, customers, and the team. So Neil, welcome to the Forgecast. Thanks, Alberta. Delighted to be here. I hope, uh, given what you just described, that I can add something to your illustrious panelists you had before. So why don't we get started with your story? Because everybody wants to have context. You know, who is Neil Costigan? What was your career? How did your journey start? And then we will get into some of the specifics or the successes and, you know, um, and, and some of the lessons that you learn across the board. So... Okay. Well, I'm Irish, grew up in Ireland in the 70s and 80s, which is quite a different place than it is now. Uh, but I studied computer science, which was you know, a little bit rare at that time in the, in the late 80s, uh, graduating 92. And I first started working in a, an interesting, very much that startup, actually. It was a, a Skunk Works, a spin out of the Irish National Telecom. And we were making network management systems and I was a software developer. Now, the great team was about 20 of us, I think, all told, in a space of about two years. Somebody there made some great technology decisions, but it had us working on C, on SQL databases. It was on TCP IP. We were doing it on X-Windows motif. So, you know, great, really crested wave technology that we were trying into the mix of as new engineers. So that was my formative years. A couple of years programming C for graphics. And that's why I say my, my trade is, is software development. If it all goes wrong, I'll always go back and be a C programmer. That's, that's the instinctive uh, trade and, and discipline I would have. But I, um, I moved from Ireland to Sweden back in the mid-90s. And I got a job in an interesting kind of startup or consultancy for Rayleigh in Stockholm. And we were doing kind of siloed crypto stuff. We were in security in around the health system. And it struck me that there was a generic way of doing this. And the big problem back then, if, if you remember, in the mid-90s was that crypto was export controlled. So we didn't have our hands on high-end crypto that the American companies were making. And I, I had a light bulb moment where I realized I could put it back in. And so we spun out a startup, myself and a few of my colleagues. I was CTO. And in the space of about two and a half years, we made a secure internet banking facility. So we put in the security to the browsers. We did digital signing. We did secure web services. Very much what would be looked at as an adaptive authentication kind of suite. And I was coding. I was I was writing code and, and a CTO. In the space of that two and a half years, we flipped it out to California. So I moved out to San Francisco. We worked in Mountain View. I had some interesting projects, particularly with Visa that led to an exit, a successful exit to uh, Gem Alto, uh, Gem Blue at the time, the smart card manufacturers. And so, you know, that was all security, PKI, SSL. We kind of did pre-SSL, SSL. And then when SSL came along, we were, we were doing that kind of stuff. So all the PKI, X509, the various 
iterations of 1.0, 1.2, of SSL. But I, I moved to France and ran R&D for banking and security for GemFlu at the time. So marker manufacturers, you know, there's 8,000 people there. It was quite a jump for, you know, I was in my late 20s, early 30s at the time, a couple of years in the south of France. And after that time, I retired to study. So I went back to university. I, I thought I was going to do an MBA. Uh, ended up doing a master's in uh, security. And that led into a PhD track. So your Dr. Neil bit was by accident. I was hanging around with some very smart people and I hung around long enough that I too got, got the doctorate. So that's kind of the story to the PhD. And I think the more interesting one, and one you probably have me here to talk about was the journey after that. During my time doing my PhD, I was in Sweden. I was at a university as a guest uh, researcher. I was introduced from mutual friends to Olaf and Peter, the, the founders of BehaviorSec, who had just set up the company. Peter had the idea. He went to the innovation office. Olaf was working there. And quickly, the two of them put together a skeleton of a business plan and a patent application. And I came on as an advisor board member and pretty quickly joined the team. And so that was kind of the founding of BehaviorSec and uh, the, the beginning of BehaviorSec and the, the journey for the next 10, 12 years, actually, was kind of vague when we when we really got that thing going. Every time I see an old presentation or some old photographs and stuff, I said, we were doing it then, you know, it goes back that far. And then it was, you know, as I said, you know, part of the team led the company through a number of rounds and took the company out to the U.S. And, and as you said, we had a successful exit. I remember that we met through an introduction from Incutel. Incutel had given us a call and they said, look, we're looking for behavioral biometrics. We canvassed the whole world and we have found a company out there in Sweden, the north of Sweden, in Lulia, that is doing amazing work. But what is more impressive is they gotten DARPA awards. And DARPA tends to be very regionalistic and always wants to support American universities. But the fact that DARPA gave you, put you as part of their work programs, and the fact that Incutel was giving us a call, we said, I better meet with these guys. So maybe you can replay that episode when we got together. Well, the DARPA story is interesting. Uh, they put out a call way back, and I'm talking 2012, God. And it was, they had this very big DARPA moonshot idea, you know, hey, we believe the human will be part of the future of security. Nice and vague. And we went, actually, specifically, Olaf went, I think we can get this. And I went, I don't think we can, because of the reasons you pointed out. That is a huge amount of work, the amount of paperwork, which is, you know, b b b understandable. But we put together a proposal to them saying, you know, we believe this behavioral part is the future and this is the things that need to be done that DARPA can support and help us with. And and we won. We won a contract with it. And yeah, I remember being very surprised and then getting at it. And it was an amazing place to work. It was an amazing theater to help us and fund the R&D, the prototyping, the just the really, you look that, that hoops and hoops of hundred. So we kind of got um, a certain level of product market fit. And part of the product market fit with something as innovative and disruptive as the behavioral is the uh, the quality of the implementation and the scores, the consistency in that. And DARPA really led us there. Now, I could tell where we, we ended up doing three programs back to back. One of the one of my most rewarding times as an engineer was my being principal investigator at DARPA. We were out in Arlington Quarterly 
we work with some you know great peers in the projects and uh, and and very supportive. But then there was actors who watched DARPA advanced research and say, where is this going? And so we got the opportunity to speak to some of very big logos in the American companies who, who wanted to take the work for, further. Uh, but also, as you said, the defense industry themselves took interest. And that's where I think the recommendation uh, came to meet you. Now, the story of meeting you, I don't know if you remember this, Alberto, but <laughs> there was quite a, an interesting one. My, my daughter is a gamer and she's quite young at the time. I think she's 12. She's, she's not quite 12 anymore, uh, but at 12 at the time, and she asked, could she go to the Minecraft convention? And I totally assumed it was here in Sweden because Minecraft, the company, Mayong, are, are Swedish. Mm-hmm. And I just thought this was just a trip at the weekend after the local convention hall. But no, 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 this is a very different thing. This was in Anaheim in Disney. And I went, oh, I got to do this. And I actually turned into an amazing thing. I really enjoyed it, actually, as you could kind of pick up of a bit of a nerves in my own rights. And uh, so three days at a gaming conference was fun as well. But I took a long, slow road trip up the one from, from L.A. To, to San Francisco, to Shore, California. And we did it over about five days. And that's quite a slow trip. But part of it, of course, I had to do some work. And I took the opportunity when I was in the Bay Area to do some networking and, and pitching presented the deck and the slides and the story and the DARPA story and some of our European customers, which we may get soon, and show it off. And, you know, I have to drag her around. And some of these VCs, you know, the ones at the, the high end of Sand Hill Road would take a look and go, who is this guy with his daughter? And, and be a bit surprised. But when I met you, you did the opposite. You went straight to her, avoided me, and, you know, I had a really nice warm chat with Clara who decided to tell you that I do this over and over again. I said nothing but the same things and that my PowerPoints weren't really good at all. And so I was, well, that's, that's the end of this meeting. And I think subsequently I met you, you know, long after we did the deal together, I asked you why, what was the actual thing, the second look, and, you know, you actually said to me, it was anybody who brings his daughter along to a meeting, I got to meet him twice. So, uh, you know, maybe she was the trump card. Uh, but the second meeting, I think, well, we pitched and when we got down to kind of haggle out the small printer, the, actually more the, the, the overall terms of the investment, I met you on the sides of a conference, a security conference in, in Monterey. And uh, we had quite time down the back of the gardens in this hotel. And, you know, I think we, we made a handshake deal and, you know, I was feeling, okay, is it good or bad? I don't know. Uh, but I'm walking with you back up to the event. And what was a five-minute walk took us about 20 minutes because every single person stopped to have a chat with you and shake hands and catch up and everything. And I remember just looking and going, I think I've made a good decision here. This this this, this guy knows everybody. This is going to work. And I'm talking some very prestigious names that I got introduced to just through your network uh, uh, that day and, and afterwards. So that's uh, that, uh, that was one angle. I appreciate the compliment. This is what ForgePoint is all about, building trusted, long-standing relationships because as investors, I would tell you, we don't know anything, but we have a network that can really help our entrepreneurs build lasting companies. So appreciate the I've been around now for five years and certainly the network is an amazing asset and the team feeling of uh, force by, but, but don't uh, dismiss that you don't know anything. The operations, uh, the fact that you guys, most of you are operators, and kind of come uh, with the stories and experience of the problems that I've had and we have is way different than a lot of the larger, more uh, finance-orientated uh, venture capital input. You know, they 
the contribution is valid and, and the money is uh, a big part of the investment, of course, but the, uh, you know, the classic value add on top of the money, the network, the team and the competence of, of, of the team you have around you is, is a big part of that. As a serial entrepreneur, Neil, you appreciate that nothing goes in a straight line, right? There's a lot of bumps along the road. You got a, a loyal team next to you that de-risks on execution. But at the same time, there's some critical milestones that you need to achieve in order to get attention for your next round or a potential exit. So can you just briefly describe some of the, your, the journey with Behavior specifically until the exit? Well, you know, BMC was a university spin-out. So a lot of the team, particularly in the engineering development, data science, you know, they're, it's their first time working, first jobs. And the enthusiasm and energy and new skill sets are amazing. They really are. And, and that's one of the reasons I love doing startup stuff, actually. I love the the early days when, you know, you're, you're all in it together. Everyone has to multi-hash. Uh, you've got to find people who are capable of the amount of time and energy and commitment it takes. But secondly, to understand and get that roller coaster, two steps forward, one step back, to really appreciate the successes, but also to learn from the steps to go back. And there are many. So the team is there. If you remember quite a few of the Behavisec team, in addition to Peter and Olaf, as I said, quite, quite, you know, enthusiastic now, people coming out of the university with these ideas, we put together some of my old team. So my previous exit, Ingo and, and Wolfgang and Caleb and all joins. So you put the band back together. You know, hey guys, I, got, I think I got something, you know, drop everything, I'll see you. And in the case of Ingo, you got to remember, drop everything was, was taken from the South Pacific. <laughs> so, you know, that was... Quite a big ask for me to, to get him to come back. Now, okay, you know, at that times you're there. But the go-to-market, I haven't read very many of the business books describing our industry. You know, I've got a shelf full of them. But there's a, the one that really resonated to me was Crossing the Chasm. It was kind of like, yes, yes, this guy gets what, what I see. You know, that, you know, it kind of described or documented, which a lot of us, particularly those who were around in, in Silicon Valley in the, in the late 90s, were executing. You got to focus. It's focus, cross that chasm, get over the early adopters, work with them in a certain way at the early stages. But when you get that product market fit, be very disciplined to focus and repeat the hell out of it. You know, that's it. It's uh, people don't get that in addition to the idea and the, the prototype and the demo, execution, scale, references, proof points, integration points, the, 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 the version two of the product that happens after that chasm is when things really get get and explode. It's very tempting to take the product into many different verticals. It's very tempting to try and scale too many geographies, too many uh, verticals, too many partners. So the discipline of, of really getting the success, identifying the 80% of that success that's really important and repeatable and, and really double down into that or maximize it. That's a real key. I fail. And, you know, the text says it, you know, many people fail at that chasm spot. So to learn the lessons, the patterns, the experience for you have yourself and your peers have, and people like yourself bring as advisors. And a lot of it is that case, make the decision, be very disciplined and stick to it. So build a team, multidisciplined team, all the roles are as important. You know, there isn't, you don't need a whole bunch of prima donnas. You really need to have people who are, are get it or prepared to, as I said earlier multi-hat and, and do the time uh, and work together. They got to work together. You got to like the people you're with. You've got to spend an awful lot of time with them. 
So any cracks in personalities, any cracks in, in, in commitment, any cracks in skill sets, any gaps in skill sets, you've really got to fill them and fill them. I think you're very insightful on those comments because I remember you, you needed to cross the pond, right? Yeah. We were very impressed because you had some of the largest financial institutions as customers in Europe, yeah. a small startup with very little go-to-market, yet great engineering and support. But you said, hey, if I'm going to be successful, I need to bring and build a go-to-market team in North America. Yeah. What we forget, we easily forget, is the fact that this was in the middle of COVID. I remember that one of the conditions was, Neil, you got to move. You cannot be going back and forth. But the world shut down in, on us. But at the same time, you were very set on bringing, you talked about DNA. You know, you have certain very strong DNA that you have in the founding team and culture, but you are beginning to insert DNA with go-to-market skills, but culturally different because sometimes the U.S. or Silicon Valley or whatever tends to say, hey, let's get going, let's do this or that, but you have that convergence and making sure you build a team. But I remember you took a lot of personal sacrifice going back and forth because you couldn't move effectively in yeah. COVID. So, Well, there was, there was pre-COVID and then it was COVID. So we did about... We'd... Together, we did about four and a half years, uh, I think, from first investment to the exit. Two, two and a half out of that was pre-COVID, and, and yet it was building out the team. So we, from the Swedish base, and as you said, we had traction from directly selling to some of the kind of digital sophisticated banks in Europe, in, in, in Sweden, in Norway, Denmark, Holland, Belgium, Germany, and Switzerland. Very, very similar banks, very similar in their journeys with regard to digital transformation and technologies like ours were viewed as part of that journey. Uh, Europe, uh, fintech, particularly banking, uh, is a little bit further still, I think, than, than, the, than North America. And so we were bringing lessons out as well. But you're right, the, the cultural fit, bringing in people who just didn't break, you know, it wasn't the shift. And we ended up about 50-50, about half the team were in North America, half the team in Europe. Half the team was engineering R&D, the other half were, were in, but I it was always called the commercial side of things which was uh, sales, partners, professional services, customer success, product management. And the thing, and this is an external person to Sweden, that the ability to make really high-end, particularly in security, high-quality, you know, fantastic products, and there's many of them out of, out of the Nordics in Sweden, but they can be very over-engineered. They can look like an Ericsson phone. They can look like a Volvo. Uh, the best engineering under the hood, the best technology in sight, but if you remember people like Ericsson taking Sony in to take the, that commercial front end to make it uh, consumable, I think the same happened with us. It happens with Swedish companies that the amazing marketing, product management, and product marketing, all separate disciplines, feed on. So we basically made a superb engineering and had the team in North America to put that put that lipstick on and really make the product, I think, a lot more fit for purpose with regard to being able to be consumed by the second tier of customers that aren't that area adopters who are happy with the, with the nuts and bolts and putting the nuts and bolts together. I think we, we, we got to the stage that we were, we were giving them an assembled product rather than parts. And that, that, I think, is part of the journey and part of the, part of the value that Silicon Valley brings that I don't think that either Silicon Valley understands or Europe understands that those disciplines are, are quite different and really productifying is something that was done very, very well in North America. Yeah, I remember that one of the very first hires that we was, we need somebody to to help us run product management. 
Yeah. And, and sometimes we get reactions from other entrepreneurs. Say, what do you mean, project management? I have, I already have one of those, even two of those. But when you start appreciating the product management discipline of bringing, you know, the requirements and the need for commercialization and eventually product marketing and marketing, this is very interesting and very much necessary to succeed. And you know, I, the other thing that I would compliment you is when you came to North America, instead of saying, let's grow at all costs, you were very scrappy, say, we're going to go plan yeah. some reference accounts that are going to validate our technology, and then is when we're going to go scale. I remember you landed one of the largest banks in the U.S. that was driving to huge digital transformation as a customer reference. And I say, wow, that's a huge validation of the value you, you provided. But to your point, you needed solutions, architects, product management, project management, professionals to make him successful. You landed one of the largest marketplaces in the world as a customer. You, we, we also landed one of those ride-sharing companies that were doing and wanting to know how to control fraud and things like that. So we were amazed. And then the moment we said, okay, this is time for scale, we got an inbound to buy the company. And maybe you can complete the chapter. I think actually in hindsight, we weren't as daunted by the scale of some of the customers in the US as we should have been. We were used to dealing with, say, uh, a bank in Sweden with one or two million users, a bank in, in Switzerland with, with, you know, five million. And next minute you get into somebody where it's about 100 million. They go, okay, that's just a, a bigger version of, of, of what we did before. But in a smaller one, you're dealing with the fraud officer, security officer, the sign-off, data protection, the person who scales it. They all go for beers on a Friday night and know each other. But you just start dealing with a 100 million bank in North America, that fraud officer could be in Dallas and, and the security guy can be in Boston and then the operations people can be in Boise, Idaho. Now that's different countries practically. And so that we possibly should have been a bit more overwhelmed than that we were. But the logo and the scale and the fact that we were delivering, I, I remember one of the analysts, I remember a partner and I asked him why did they partner with us? Cause that was inbound. And he said, oh, we were doing some strategy with one of the analyst firms. And the analyst said, the next thing you guys should do is be able to buy metrics. And if you're going to do it, you can make it or build it. Or you can build it or license it. Don't build it. It's really, really hard to do. And if you're going to license it, you got to go to the behavior sector because in practice, they're the only ones executing. And I remember just going, give me that quote, put it on the website. <laughs> That's it. That's the best thing ever. And, and it was a little bit of that. I don't think we appreciated how well the technology was executing and the word of mouth. If you also think back to our European customers, there was hives of them. Number of customers in Benelux, a number of customers in the Nordics, a number of customers in the German-speaking areas. They sold it to each other. They, you know, one bank told us that the other bank called them up and said, hey, this technology is pretty cool. You've got to have a go at it. And you know, so the best references, best customers, best customer success was the previous customer telling the next one. I think that happened in, in North America as well, that that customer logo, who everybody knows was quite tough to be a supplier to, uh, did some things in-house and you know put suppliers through the mill. I think the fact that we were getting renewals and, and stepping up the business gave an indicator that the technology was valid because people were you know, understandably skeptical to such a disruptive new idea. But then, yeah, on the back of that, we got an inbound. I think it was the word out there, we got an inbound. And, and my job as a, as a CEO is to take all these things very, very seriously. 
and I remember going and bringing it to the board and we all collectively went, you know, this is interesting. It's, it's a number, but, but it's not, it's not good enough number. It's not, it's not there. Uh, we were structuring to do new financing. You know, we had the full support of all the existing investors. Sarah was very excited, um, you know, and understandably, and again, best practices to go out there and find a number to value the company. This was one, there's other ways of doing it, but we weren't in a position that we were out to exit or that we were in a position where we had to, thankfully, because I think the body language you, you have afterwards is, you know, if you don't need to do it, it's an awful lot better position to be in. And so that started. And yeah, I think the board, uh, yourself and the other investors kind of came to right, you know, with that number. We got to go and see what else is there. You know, that's the that's the smart move, and that's the that's the right move is to go and check it out. And I don't know if it's the next chapter, but uh, we together uh, decided to go and, and get an advisor uh, to to kind of help us in that journey to not distract the business. A very small team and a very small senior team can get consumed with that process. So I think the the the, the, the best thing we did is is to take in really good uh, advice and help in that. I remember, just to make sure to emphasize the point, how many patents do you have? Because you say, oh, we had great technology, work, and all that, but don't just brush it off to the side. No, uh, you're running a startup. It's a tight ship, and you got to make decisions about where you spend your money, resources, where you hire, what to do it. The whole thing is a balance. It's kind of like a natural, I hate to say hierarchy, but triangle to the shape of a company. If you got too many engineers, it looks odd and everything. But one of the things that people wonder is like, like, but where are you spending the money? What are the skill sets? What's there? And of course, everybody in the commercial team quite rightfully is concerned about the customer who's signing next Friday and doesn't understand why the whole company is not all rallied behind them and just that meeting and just that demo and just that that delivery. And of course, you you know, you treat them with the the level of of seriousness that they're there. But however, you've got to keep on going. You've got to look over the horizon. You've got to have a roadmap for the product. You've got to invest in things that are coming Around the corner, you participate in standards. You you evangelize. You um, you build your product marketing and your company strategy. How do you present yourself in front of the industry? You know, getting that position. That's all peacocking and making yourself big, and all part of the game that you have to do in parallel to this week's customer. But one of the things I think you um, you're raising there is it's is patents. It's sometimes you're sitting there going, how can we with such a small team? have the overhead of those external lawyers. What are we getting out of this? Where is the ROI on that money spent? Well, you know, it turns out as you get investment, it's a big part of it. It's it's that validation, that freedom to operate. I think we two different financing rounds that focus on different aspects of the business. And one investor was very, very specific about freedom to operate. So, you know, competitors patents of where do we fit in the industry? And so that's strong and I have to give credit to Ingo, who writes these things like a machine and, and, and works with the external IP lawyers uh, for Optima. We had quite a successful machine. We were kind of filing in an orderly fashion. Every quarter, we'd be getting something out there, not making a big deal about it. You know, it's not something I think is needed in your marketing or your your customer-facing material for a few reasons I could, I could expand on, but it's the language of doing business. So when you're getting investment, you need that freedom to operate. You need that stack. And it's not just do you have a patent. It's that cadence of constantly inventing, of reassuring the product and building it. So at finance rounds, finance rounds. And then in the in the exit and in the negotiations of you know the value of the company, the patents are a huge part of that. 
they, you know, there's a couple of the advisors would actually take the patent portfolio, particularly if they were silicon focused. I knew multiples of the patents and that's where they come up with their numbers. And there was certainly ROI and, and the time spent there. Oh, we've got some great stuff with actually, you know, there is a case of shoulders to the wall, get this thing out, get that customer happy or whatever. But there are those moments when you're kind of internally high-fiving. Things like DARPA is great, but also the patents and some of the ideas to, to, to kind of make a big thing of the team for such innovation, such breakthroughs and such success actually was also. So we would high-five and have our Friday beers or cake come in or whatever around a customer, about a hire, a birthday, financing round. Uh, but patents were a big part of that as well. Yeah, you were building that moat that would show that it not only wasn't easy, but people that wanted to come in the market, they needed to exceed that or reference your patents, which yeah. is very interesting. Now, there was nothing really in our history of litigation or, or contention around the patents. You know, it's it's you know it's energy sapping in that regard, but uh, but they're there. They have to be there. And one of the reasons we didn't have any problems was because we had a solid foundation. You know, so. exactly. So through the backing process, you got like six different offers or something that I remember. And then you selected the place where you're working today. Maybe let's talk about just the general process. Process, yeah. It, it made more importantly the, the transition before and after, right? Which is so as an entrepreneur, you have you have loyalty to your team, to your customers. So, you know, just at a high level, because you know, those are... Well, if we roll back a bit, one has to remember, we kind of eye on the price, you know, that uh, if we look at our industry, particularly our vertical, the security vector, there isn't too many huge companies that stand alone. There's a lot of consolidation, a lot of mergers, acquisitions, a lot of roll-ups, you know, and that's kind of inevitable. So in the journey, you've got to, you know, you got to have an eye on that, you know, you got to know, and, and you're constantly in the journey in addition to fundraising somebody once told me if you're in a startup and you say you're not raising funding you're just lying right you just are it's a constant part of the journey and so in addition to financing and there is the element of dealing with the potential acquirers so you're dealing with bankers uh, brokers uh, you're dealing with your partners to be very selective and very you know to understand the ecosystem where you fit the value you bring a lot of the reason you're onboarding partners is a future investment. It's not necessarily, and, and quite a lot of startups will never get any revenue through the channel. However, you know, knowing where you fit, uh, having big partners open doors, the reputation they bring with you, but, but ultimately there's a potential acquisition there. And usually when you sign off their partnership, particularly if it's kind of with the right company on the other side who know this too, uh, we all informally know this. You, you, you not just sign a partnership, you introduce yourself to the corporate development team. You update them every six months, both on how you're doing, but also potentially where, where this is going. We invited some of our partners to be strategic investors, and you'd be very selective about that too, because it can also close some doors. So there's a constant eye on the prize with regard to you know where, this, where, where or if there's going to be an exit. So in that regard, when we got the inbound offer and we did speak, we did a process to select a banker and advisor. Uh, we did that together with the board of the investors. We did 10, shortlisted four, selected one based on a number of things. But I think it was the feeling that they understood the business and that we could, you know, do business with them basically and that their advice was was gold. And that turned out to be. And so when we went into a process, you know, they shortlisted a number of people we should speak to. It turned out they were pretty good. Between ourselves and them, our partners, them, and, and some other names that came up, they got a lot of interest. And so it was a busy time. It was in the middle of COVID. We didn't get to meet anybody. 
there was pitches. I was myself, Josh, the CFO, Ingo is head of engineering, you know, we're, we're head of that, but in behind us, when it got serious, we would have CRO was in and, and uh, better partners was in, uh, you know, at various ends, depending on who the potential acquirer was. So we did a very intense, I'll never forget the last few months. Uh, in COVID, you know, it was midnight calls for us from Europe to some of these. We never met anybody. And we ended up with a number of offers, but selected one based on a number of criteria. And it is where the team is now. And I think part of it is we finally got to sit with the team for four hours in a workshop in Berlin. We were with certain individuals in that company because the overall team couldn't travel. There was still travel restrictions across the Atlantic. So a bunch of sat in a room in Berlin and the overlap in technology, vision, where we were going, complementary architecture designs, the team itself, yeah, it kind of sparked, you know, there was a certain, you know, you'd expect an awful lot more concerns and issues to come out of it. And when we went into that final lockdown and we had that ability to pick and choose, I think, I think we chose well. Because that's where we are now. It's been over a year and a half. The majority of the team are still with us, even through COVID and, and some of the you know macroeconomic kind of climate where, where that's not necessarily going to be the case for all decisions. It's been interesting. But my previous exit was also in a, a time of, of economic uncertainty, and it, it didn't go very well for a couple of reasons. One, I think the previous company wasn't that mature in acquisitions. Whereas Relics or LexisNexis Risk Solutions are, and so came with a playbook of lessons they've learned from this process and kind of laid it out. And to be fair, there was very little to negotiate or to clarify or understand. Uh, it was it was nearly self-evident that this was, was the right way to do it. And so, yeah, that's that that's kind of how it works. You know, as I said, here we are a year and a half in, and I would think... I, my understanding is the majority of everybody thinks it's been great. For the team, you know, in one sense, it's an abstract, but it's kind of fulfilling the roadmap and journey we thought we were going to take with the technology. And the fact that we're doing it with a partner now rather than, you know, on our own is, is, is a little to the point. I saw some slides I had from around, I want to say 2012, but they were kind of bad graphics, but the trajectory and the industries and the technology leaps we'd have and where we'd sit and what I call now the connected cloud for this technology. And if you've got to remember, there wasn't even internet mobile banking running around at the time. So, you know, what we saw and where we've got to, we, we followed that journey. We were very stubborn and we didn't pivot and we're still on that trajectory and that's where we are going now and, and you know, delivering as part of the Lex and Next Risk Solutions family. I guess as a former and fellow serial entrepreneur, can only ag agree with you. There are successful acquisitions from a financial standpoint, but there are also successful acquisitions when you, the technology gets to be pervasive. And not yeah. only that, the team, the team in Lulia is now like double or, or yeah. and people well, see the value. Uh, it will be if we get all the hires that we've just put out the ads for. So we're on a big hiring blurge at the moment, which is great uh, to compliment and grow out the team. You know, I kept speaking about those Friday nights when we were delivering to a customer. Now we're kind of monthly delivering to a product organization. So instead of 10 different customers and 10 different deadlines and 10 different configurations and very tight customer deadlines, there's a more thoughtful roadmap, larger platform we're delivering. So it's actually one customer. It's the platform that the, the company run and operate. 
Now, it's subtly different, but very, very different in practice to the development and engineering team. It's an awful lot more chance to breathe the ideas. There's an awful lot more chance to get it right. The QA is there. Our peers, there's different layers of this technology for fraud prevention. We fit one, but our peers are, you know, part of the company. It's now instead of being, you know, part of a 20-person R&D group or part of a 250-person R&D group just for this product, which is part of a business unit, you know, that has, well, actually, I'll put it in revenue terms. The business unit has, a, you know, publicly stated over three and a half billion in revenue. And the larger organization is running about 10 billion. There's 36,000 employees around the world that market cap and on, on the London Stock Exchange is above 50 billion. You know, this is, this is very different than the university spin-outs that, you know, we were in, you know, not that long ago, really. No, I guess a lot of credit to how you got their attention, the scarcity value, the, the reference customers and so on. So you build enough of a moat where they felt compelled to put a premium offer to make you part of the team. I want to move on to a little bit about your next chapter. So what are you doing now? What is next? What excites you about the market? Well, what I'm doing is quite similar to what I was doing, to be honest. I mentioned before that, uh, you know, I was part of a role, an acquisition that didn't go as well as, as we had expected. And I think this time I learned that lesson and a big part of my own drive is to kind of work with each and everybody to make sure that they're happy with their position and their role and understand it and understand it very clearly and feel that they contribute and that their voices are listened to. So the company said to me, I said, what do you want me to do? And I had a lovely little short job description. It was make the acquisition a success. You know, so, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of dimensions to that. Obviously there's business and our customers, there's that, but there's also the, the HR and the personnel side of things. There's the technology roadmap side of things. There's there's, you know, where we fit in, the culture of the company moving, legal, HR, um, you know, lots and lots of dimensions. So still a multi-hatted uh, kind of role, actually, which, you know, suits, I guess. But it is putting my, sticking my nose into anything that looks like if I contribute, it gets more efficient and we move things on. And that's the role. But in parallel, it was actually, and this I liked, I'm very, well, I'm sorry about this one, but it was like, you, you seem to see the next thing. You know, I just keep doing that. And so I've been out as, you know, an individual contributor into the larger technology group under the CTO, where we're looking at future technologies and technologies that are going to affect, you know, Alexis in the, in the wider scheme of things, not, not in three months time or six months time, but in, in two years time, four years time, 10 years time. And I'm very excited. And I've just been on the back two days at the post-quantum uh, security conference uh, that was held in Amsterdam the last two days, very active, very interesting. And it's something that's been around for a while, where's cryptography going as a building block for security and the security products and the products that are used for all the things we use them for, what's happening next? And, and there is a big shift going to happen in the near future, and we're preparing for it now. And that will impact the industry overall. It'll impact our customers, but it'll impact our ability to deliver and supply those customers. And so, yeah, I've been back to where my theoretical, my cryptographer by training part, I'm doing a bit of that at the moment. And it's, it's very rewarding, actually. It's amazing uh, what's happened in the, in the years. There's a lot of hype around AI. Your two cents worth on that, because I think it's here. It's been, oh, yeah. and uh, it's a matter of how we're going to use it and make. Yeah. Wait, well, you know, if you remember, Heavysec was an AI company. Oh, I know. It was 
kind of custom, not these large language models, but but variants or internal versions of them. So it's very much in our minds and very much an active part of our, our current work and activities. And already we're finding the tools to be taking some of the mundane parts of delivery away. And some of the innovation, really exciting innovation I've seen in the product is using it as another tool. It's yet another tool, but this one takes a lot of I guess delivery, there's some mundane parts, there's some checkboxes there, get them wrong, you've got security problems, helping them, using them as tools to make sure that, you know, we don't have those security problems. And also in the performance side of things, proper configuration, multiple things so much quicker. Uh, and again, you know, we've new tools based on advances in AI that are taking all that hard work out. So great stuff, even for what we have today, now where it's going, you know, it's, it's just incredible what, what they, what, what's coming. But you and I have been through many technology jumps and, and that, and I think there's a pattern. I see it. I'm not, uh, I'm a fan of Gartner. I'm not going to say I'm not a fan of Gartner, but one of the lovely things I love about Gartner is the hype cycle. It's a, a tool that we can lean on and, and everything over and over again. And there's a certain point in that journey that, that the AI is on. And if we remember those, that journey and those paths, like, like crossing the chasm, we just see the journeys of others. I think we can learn from this technology that we can see where it's going as well. Now, one difference I think now is the speed of it, you know, where we had time to understand that hype cycle, had time to see where this technology innovation is disrupting, just like the other ones. This has happened so quickly that that's, you know, can we keep our head around it is my worry. I guess just to come into towards an end, you also value the, the role of the board. I know we're very honored and excited that you're a member of our advisory board, uh, to help our entrepreneurs in our portfolio, but any comments about boards in general and uh, especially? Yeah, actually, yeah, it's, it's a topic uh, I watched just in preparation for talking to you about. I was watching some of the uh, other interviews you'd done just to see how you were going to grill me. <laughs> but the one with Ed struck me, uh, Ed made a comment about boards and the boards understanding where they fit in, in the ecosystem, in the, you know, in the, you know, the responsibilities. And I think he was speaking to some guidance that was coming from the authorities of the Fed about, you know, further responsibilities for the board in regard to risk and, and that. But it struck me actually that one one thing that frustrated me and I in hindsight now know a lot more about, but I think the leadership teams also need to understand and possibly have some education very early days about what the board is. Time and time again we'd have some of the senior team going what's the board going to tell us to do? And you're like, they're not, they're not going to tell us to do anything. We're the subject matter experts. We're the ones executing. So for example, you know, you know, is the board giving us our operating plan? And it was like, no, we're going to debate and discuss and build an operating plan that we believe in. And we'll present it to the board for their experience in governance and corporate eyes or whatever, and it'll be approved or not approved or our suggestions will be made. But the operating plan doesn't come down from the board. The board is not the management team. We are. And I, I, you know, I would have some senior members of the team in a panic about the board. And I was like, you know, but, but you're the, you're in charge of your feature and function. Why do you think the board's going to, you know, this is an advisory group. This is a governance group. This is an auditor group. This is a um, you know, fiduciary or whatever, but it's not the executive team. And sometimes I think in the early days, by the way, the overlap might be in a small, small startup, there is, you know, multi-hatted and, and that kind of thing. But when you get to a certain stage and scale, when things become a bit more rigid, 
So I do, yeah. I think um, founder, exec team, education, and it just takes a, you know, like a, 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 a training session or a chat or a set out the guidelines early. But uh, that's something I see missing. I think people think the boards are some kind of magic and some kind of magic wand comes down and, and things change and decisions happen and everything. No, it's generally commentary on proposals to be approved. And that's a very different dynamic than uh, than I think people understand. As venture capitalists, we always try to evaluate in criteria what startups we're going to back. And we look at the market dynamics, how big the market, the team, the go-to-market, et cetera. But you, as a serial entrepreneur, also a criteria you're evaluating. How do you know it's going to work? So any advice to fellow entrepreneurs that are listening to these forecasts to just kind of share your, your own experience on how that works. Nobody knows it's going to work. Uh, there's a lot of gut feeling and gut feelings built in experience. Gut feeling is fe- that feeling when you see it and you see the patterns that have worked before and that it lines up somehow with that. So that one would be very hard to say, but certainly one thing, and, I, and, and particularly coming from the angle that I've come from a, a few times from the light bulb moment and you've got to go like from genuinely nothing particularly if it's academic or at the university kind of advanced research environment, is a lot of people believe it's the idea. And actually, it's the execution of the idea, right? So it's the the, the, the 95% is not the idea. The 95% is, is the, the execution. And so you've got to see if the people around the idea can execute. But execution means knowing how to delegate, knowing how to balance the 80-20 rules about what to focus on. It means getting on together. It means having personalities that can multi-hat. So actually spotting, you know, that it's not just a brilliant idea. It's somebody who's willing to go 24-7, 365. It's somebody who knows how to work with their partners and peers. Somebody who knows they don't know everything. Somebody who knows that uh, it's a team effort, that you need all those skills and that nobody, just because you have the idea, doesn't mean that the person who gets the sale wins, but the person who gets the sale needs to know whether or not it wasn't them, it was the team who made the product. The people who made the products got to know that their wages have been paid by the commercial team and the investment. That You know, you see what I mean? It starts becoming a thing. And I think the success is, is the team who knows that, uh, spotting the team, spotting the talent that becomes a team. You know, in, in soccer terms, Slatan can change the game, but he can play the other level by themselves. You need a goalkeeper and a right wing or a defense and a da 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 da. So it's not the manager, it's not the star striker, it's the full team and squad and coaching staff and, and everything. So I think seeing a idea and the people around it that knows that it's going to be that journey. Plus, by the way, I remember having this with Olaf, and I've said it over and over again, and Josh loves it as well. I say, if you don't enjoy the journey, you shouldn't be doing this. So you got to have people who love the journey and not necessarily the outcome, because uh, the outcome is an outcome. It's the journey on the way, uh, the war stories, the camaraderie, the, the you know David against Goliath, the high fives. We, we have so many fun you know stories. And tough ones too, you know, it wasn't all roses, but uh, you got to enjoy the journey. So actually spotting a team and a bunch of people and around them uh, that are got to do that. And one of those things that I love is, is people prepare to listen and be criticized and take criticism and, and work on it and help, you know, and, and get it. So, yeah, I think when I've been doing a little bit of coaching or around 
events and innovation and pitching and standing and you're talking to people, if you can quickly ascertain that somebody's got to be somebody that you want to meet the next time, the next time, the next time, because they're a nice person and they get it and they're going to grow from that, that's a big part of it. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. I know that you've got a very close team and also the unspoken heroes, the, the CFO, the person that is there next to you, making sure we cannot invest here, we can do these, the human factor. Yeah. It's an unsung hero as well. So, a couple or... of hires that you only, not the person, then individual, they have to fill the role, but there's a certain stages, you know, that stage when you need a full-time CFO. And I remember that, you know, we had very little money and we were investing in the first hire in North America. You've got, they've got to be right. You don't get a second chance that somebody to see if it's bugger that thing up in, in a year or two. Company's in a shell, there's no corporate governance, you never get investment, whatever. So staging the company, right size in the company at the right time is very, very important. And yeah, no doubt all of those roles uh, fitted in into the overall solution, you know. Well, thank you very much for imparting your, your knowledge, your wisdom, your experiences. You know, I think everybody's going to be benefiting from your experience and, you know, really appreciate and, and value the, the relationship that we have with you and the team. And hopefully there will be more to come. Join successes. So, oh, I've really just explained describing my experience. Uh, but I do, as I said a few times, I think there's a pattern to this. And I've always looked at other founders and journey people in this ecosystem uh, to lean on. People have been very, very generous with their time and advice. And above me on the call of duty, it's quite often it's those late hours and pipes that, you know, that you get that moment. And so in some way, if I can do the same, it, it's great. Thank you again, Neil, and we look forward to seeing you in the... Yep. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Subscribe to the Forgecast, which is brought to you by Forgepoint Capital. We're a leading cybersecurity and digital infrastructure venture capital firm that invests in exceptional teams protecting the digital future. To learn more about Forgepoint, visit forgepointcap.com or find us on LinkedIn and Twitter.